The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Most of you know that uh, once a month we, I review usually, or somebody in the community reviews, this uh, particular teaching we call dana, which is a word usually translated as generosity. And it's, in a very practical way, it's how the center operates. But it's really meant to be, you could say it's the fruit of cultivating mindfulness, is that we learn how to live in the world in a way of freely giving and receiving. And you have this opportunity to practice at common ground in any relationship you have in the world. So we purposefully don't charge or have suggested donations so that each of us, including the teachers, we can explore that circle of giving and receiving. So when we come to Common Ground, we're holding or keeping in mind opportunities to give freely and opportunities to receive freely. And of course, that's happening all the time. There's always ways. I mean, you can't have a moment of existence without receiving it. So, we're really talking about a view or a way of relating. So, we're relating to the present moment as a moment in which the heart or the mind is receiving the way it is. Receiving the sensations, receiving the mood and the thoughts, receiving the sounds and sights, receiving this, this present moment. And in every moment, as long as we're alive, we're giving something, right, that our expression, our response, is our gift. And sometimes it's not a very good gift, and sometimes it is a good gift. It's a beautiful gift. It's something, actually, that we can even ourselves be inspired by our response in a particular moment. So it's a very useful way to practice in life, to see each moment as a giving and a a receiving. And then... The idea, like we all know, sometimes we use the word enlightenment, which is not a very good word for the fruit or the goal of practice. Sometimes awakening, it's a better word. Sometimes liberation or freedom is used as for the goal. And those are useful words too. So the idea that in this world of giving and receiving, that's just the way it is. We're always receiving and we're always responding or presenting ourselves as a gift to the present moment. Like it or not, here I am, my response, who I am, what I'm saying, how, I, how I'm manifesting in that moment, that's the gift. And the question is, can we do that freely? Or does it have a lot of friction, a lot of resistance, a lot of stress in the receiving and giving? So... Common ground can be one of those places to practice being free, freely receiving whatever you get from being in the community, being in this building, receiving these teachings. Can you allow that to be a free gift? So it makes you happy to be receiving. How nice, no strings attached. And then in any way you give back through your good wishes, your sincere practice, contributing money to support 
the center to help us pay the office staff and the support the teachers and the building, all the ordinary expenses of a nonprofit organization. Anything you give is a free gift because it makes you happy. Everything you receive is a free gift because it makes you happy. So the idea is in the relationship to Kamgan, and then of course in any relationship where you want to cultivate the circle of freely giving and receiving, we're practicing being free in the relationship. In other words, happy. All our relationships in life are designed to make us happy or to make us suffer. And as one person once said, both strategies take equal amount of work. Using life to make you unhappy takes a lot of work. Using life, experience, all our relationships to make us happy takes a lot of training too. But one leads to happiness and the other leads to suffering. And generally, as you all know, we all know, we generally take the road that leads to suffering. You know, our relationships are often problematic. They're not places where we experience a lot of freedom. They're places where we experience a lot of entanglement. So, it's been really protecting. You know, we've been in existence now since 1993, so 21 years. And we've operated this way. And it works well enough. We own the building. We have a retreat property out in western Wisconsin now that we bought last year that we're developing. It's really just a farm, but it's on, on its way to becoming a retreat property. We're just finishing up now the first fall practice period. Maggie was out there. Maybe a few others in the room have been out there during this last month practicing on the property. And we'll have one in March, one in July, one next November again. So it's a nice opportunity to get out there. So we have, you know, and all of this happens, and I earn a middle-class existence, and I think we pay our office staff a reasonable salary, and people like Nancy, our yoga teacher, get support from the donations that are given when she's teaching. So all of this happens because, evidently, it makes people happy to give. And hopefully people are happy to receive too. So it's our job to find a way to, to participate in the community, if it makes sense for you to be here, in a way that makes you happy. To receive in a way that makes you happy, and to give in a way that makes you happy. And the, the real shadow to this way of doing it, as opposed to like charging a fee, the real shadow is people don't do this consciously. Don't actually take what I'm offering and reflect on it. Like, okay, is my way of relating to common ground making me happy or not? Like, am I giving too much in a way that's out of balance in my life and so I don't feel good about it? Or I'm not giving enough, volunteering, contributing money, having good wishes of appreciation for the people who make it possible. Then we feel the heart feels a little stingy. That doesn't feel good either. So we have to bring it to mind. That's why I bring it up once a month or somebody gives a few minute talk on it. So if you've been around for a couple of years and you'd like to do this at the last Wednesday of the month sometime, just let me know because it's nice to have other voices talk about this circle of giving and receiving, how it works in different people's lives, both in terms of common ground but other places in your life as well. I know Kay has done it a number of times on Wednesday night. Um, so... 
some of you other leaders or long-time community members, let me know if you'd like to do it. So how'd you like the space meditation tonight? So we're, it's a lead-in to talking about equanimity. We're now on the seventh factor of awakening. These, this is this list that I've been encouraging people to memorize. Remember, I've been kidding, because I, I once studied educational psychology at the U way back when, and uh, it's one of those forever doctoral students that never finished. <laughs> but I learned a few things. And uh, one of the things I learned is you can learn seven things, but it's not so easy to learn more than seven things. So lists that are seven long, you can learn. So you can learn the seven factors of awakening, continuity of mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture or joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. These qualities or factors exist in all of our minds. They may be quite seed-like, not fully developed, but they're there. And to the degree, even just learning the list and opening your mind to the possibility that these beautiful or wholesome, useful qualities are there, it feels good. I mean, mostly we have a bad attitude about our mind, because often what's presenting are the dispositions or the tendencies of our mind that, you know, aren't very expansive or aren't very nimble or aren't very functional, like defensiveness, you know. That's not a very functional, light-hearted mental quality to be living life through, being defensive or being anxious or being needy or whatever difficult mind states that tend to dominate, at times at least, in our lives. But so if we remember where there are these seven, that this mind has the capacity to keep the present moment in mind. It may be a relatively weak muscle of the mind, but it can get developed. This mind has the capacity to actually be interested. Because of the continuity of awareness, I can start deconstructing or breaking things apart because I'm observing or knowing how it is moment by moment by moment, this mind can figure it out, figure out how it all works, how it unfolds, how I got into this hole, this difficult mind state, how I got out. Now think about all of the very difficult mind states we've been in in our lives. I mean, really dark places, right? Really obsessive places, really dull, disconnected places. Well, where did they go? I mean, it's amazing that we haven't gotten interested. Like, how did I get out of that? How did the mind break free of that negative vortex that seemed like it was going to last forever, but it didn't, did it? It's pretty amazing. I mean, this is also inspiring, realizing that all of those negative places our minds have been have ceased. Otherwise, they'd all be... We'd be dead by now for sure. Right? If, never, if none of the negative states that have ever arisen in our mind ever ceased, imagine what our mind would be like. You know, it'd be uninhabitable. But it isn't that way, hopefully, for any of us right now. It's good enough. Maybe it's even a rel relatively beautiful or wholesome state, quality of mind. So this is what investigation reveals. 
that things come and go, they come and go lawfully, and if I have the continuity of mindfulness, then I can actually investigate the lawfulness of the most important thing, which is how the heck does happiness come and go? How the heck does suffering, stressful states come and go? That would be a relevant thing for us to investigate. And then when we do investigate that, we get really energized. That's the third factor. I've been going through these, but I'm just going to keep going through them for a few more weeks, just a couple more weeks, and then we'll move on. So when the mind recognizes the value of investigation, like this mind can actually learn something about how it gets into really negative, heavy states, how it gets out of those states, how it gets into really beautiful, wholesome states, and how it can sustain those states, the mind gets energized. It's interested in applying itself to that task because it sees how functional, how useful it is to do it. So this is the interesting thing about energy. We all like energy. Just I forget, I heard recently how much money is spent every year on coffee. And then if you add caffeine and every other stimulant, it's a lot of our economy is based on kind of stimulating energy in the mind. It's amazing. But you know what actually raises the energy in the mind is directly sensing a task that brings real benefit. Not theoretical benefit, but real benefit. Then, we're, then we have energy. I always kid, like, if I said, you know, there's a couple gold bricks in this room, everybody would be energized to look under the cushions and find them. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, God, give me a cup of green tea first. <laughs> and then I'll look for the gold in a room. Because, I mean, even something as mundane and, and statistically is likely to cause suffering in your life, like having a gold brick. And then, then immediately you'd be stressed. Do I sell now or do I hang on to it? <laughs> do I trust this person to sell it to is this person looking at me? Are they going to take my brick? <laughs> but that's another talk. <laughs> you know, about fear. But anyway, energy will arise if the mind sees something that's productive to do. So investigation reveals there is something productive for this mind to do. There is something that this mind is still a kindergartner about. Causes for suffering, causes for happiness, and how to set them in motion, and how to abandon them, right? to abandon the causes for suffering. So, it's like, oh, I can learn something that will be of real value. So then there's energy. And that energy, you know, getting fed right back into that process of learning, of having insight into the causes for suffering, the causes for happiness, then rapture starts to rise because the mind gets unified in the wholesome activity of being fully 100% engaged and deepening understanding. Addressing the issue at hand, like, what's going on here? So rapture, joy, is whenever the mind comes together, the energy of the mind unifies around some activity that's at least neutral, and then, of course, 
even more so, more joy, when that gathering, that unification is around a wholesome activity, including something that could be very unpleasant, like taking care of somebody who's difficult to take care of, but you really want to be there. You really do want to take care of them. You can be feel a lot of rapture even though it might be really unpleasant doing what you're doing. My dad moved in with us the last couple of months of his life last year. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, in a lot of ways a pain in the butt to sort of separate out part of our house and, you know, all the kind of things we had to do to make it work. And we had people coming in all the time to take care of him. We hired some people and then the hospice staff and, you know, all the other, those of you who've been through this, no, it's just like a huge rigmarole. But there was so, I mean, it, and the fact that my dad was sick, somebody I love and care about, and dying. But there was a lot of joy in doing that. It felt so right to do that. Even though it was very difficult to do it. There was a lot of joy. Because my life was really busy, but it was, I, there was no doubt. Like, the other aspect of the unification that leads to joy is... It's like the whole mind is working together. It's not like part of the mind is doing this and the other part is doing something else. Everybody's on board. So there's a harmony or that's part of that unification. The wholeheartedness. So to develop the mind, we need the continuity of mindfulness. We need to investigate what's actually relevant, like the causes for happiness and suffering. We need to feel the energy and keep applying it back to the task of being mindful in a continuous way, investigating and bringing the heart and mind together so that there's joy because the joy refines the instrument, the instrument of knowing or paying attention or awareness. And how does joy refine the instrument of awareness? Well, when we have a lot of joy that way-seeking part of the mind that wants to be happy doesn't need to do it, do that sort of way-seeking, like looking for happiness in all the wrong places, right? Because it's feeling happy. The mind's got a lot of joy. So that part of the mind that wants to be happy shuts down. We call that tranquility. That hungry, that sort of existential hunger in the mind always looking for something, right? Never tranquil. Well, when we feel a lot of joy because we're doing something that's functional, that's paying off, that's what we were born to do, having insight into the nature of the mind, how to be happy, how to avoid unhappiness, there's a lot of joy and the mind starts to be tranquil, become more and more tranquil. Something we don't even realize that anxiety or agitation of hunger, like hunger not for food of course, but hunger for wanting the moment to be other than what it is. Anybody think this is the moment you've been living your life for? <laughs> no. We always, even when we have a nice moment, we always think it's coming up later, right? We're always hungry for the real moment. And what we get really good at doing this is being hungry for the moment. We get good at being anxious and leaning into it, leaning forward, wanting 
or afraid it's never going to come, doubting. That's what we get good at because that's what we practice. But when we have a lot of joy, then that will temporarily at least become extinguished and we start to feel tranquility. As tranquility deepens, there are more and more moments of stillness. Stillness or concentration, the sixth factor, is a moment when the mind is quiet, that agitation of struggling with the present moment ceases. That's the definition of concentration. When the mind is in a moment, for a moment at least, isn't struggling with the presenting conditions, what's being seen, what's being heard, what's being thought, what's being tasted, what's being smelled, whatever other sense get, I forgot, right? All of those, the mind is still sensitive, like in wholesome concentration, it's not about cutting yourself off in this style of practice. The mind is very clear, bright, sensitive, but with whatever it's sensitive to, it's not having a problem with it. So the experience of concentration is an experience we say silent or quiet or still or empty, because we're pointing to the, the absence of the struggle. So it's empty of struggle. It's the silence of not struggling. No noise of struggling, resisting, wanting, right? Or the hindrances, another way we talk about it, the hindrances have left the mind temporarily. So we have concentration. Now I want to spend a little bit more time talking about how concentration then leads into equanimity. And that's why I did that space, that meditation on space tonight. Because it has, space has the flavor of equanimity. Maybe you picked up on that as you were meditating earlier tonight. That flavor of equanimity when the mind uh, takes refuge in the sense of space, the intuitive sense of space, not in the objects that we have opinions about. The sensation in my knee, I have an opinion about that. I don't like that sensation. You know, the temperature in the room, I have an opinion about that. Somebody sniffling, I have an opinion about that. But we don't have an opinion about space. It's neutral. So how does moments of concentration or stillness, peace, how does that lead to equanimity? Well, when the mind gets really quiet, it realizes something. It's a, it's a waking up. The mind sees something that it isn't, hasn't been as clear about before. And what does it see? It directly realizes the mind itself that's not for or against experience. right? Because that's the very definition of concentration. It's a moment when the hindrances, the different ways the mind struggles, stop for a while even if it's just for a moment, or moments, a few moments. And then, in that experience of the mind's resistance and struggling ceasing, then the mind recognizes that way of being. And it's new. It's like the mind is recognized, oh, I'm sensitive, but I'm not struggling with what the mind is sensitive to. So it's like the mind wakes up to the possibility of equanimity. Oh, there's this other way of relating. Normally, whatever sense experience the mind is sensitive to, 
I immediately struggle with it. If it's a pleasant experience, I struggle to make it last. If it's unpleasant, I struggle to get rid of it. If it's neutral, I even struggle with neutral. I struggle to ignore it, right? Because it's neutral. Why would I be interested in it? So we're struggling. That's just our normal conditioned way of dealing with sense experience is to struggle. But with moments of concentration, we recognize this other way and then we also recognize how functional or skillful it is. Equanimity is a very... It's like, uh, you know, when you look through human evolution, like the discovery of fire or the, the development of language. Or, you know, it's like a huge shift of what's possible when this new discovery comes on. Well, in terms of spiritual development, it's exactly the same thing. When your mind clearly, consciously recognizes the view, the way of relating we call equanimity. So remember, equanimity is a very bright state of mind. It's not a dull. It's like, because there is a kind of equanimity, like when we're really sleepy, or we've been beaten up by life, and we just don't care. That kind of looks like equanimity. But it's not really equanimity, it's like not caring or being indifferent. It's aversion. But this kind of equanimity is like, we're really clear, the mind is very clear, present. It's aware of its dispositions, its preferences, right? So it's not like, I don't know the difference between being too cold or too warm or just right. But the mind is feeling so peaceful, it's realizing like, there's this other option, which is to be okay with the pleasantness, whether it comes and goes. To be okay with the unpleasantness, whether it comes and goes. To be okay with the neutrality of the experiences that are neutral, whether they come and go. Like, that's an option. So, for example, you can walk into a room that's too cold. Just a simple example. And you can spend your hour and a half here struggling, like proliferating. Why does Mark leave it this way? Why doesn't the program host, why doesn't Nancy or program host do something about the temperature? Or... <laughs> no, it feels fine to me. Mine says 71 too. But we don't have to struggle just because I don't have to deny the fact that it's unpleasant or that it's pleasant. I can feel the compulsion to react, but I don't need to react. See, that's a view. Like, we can be a little uh, off or experience life as being not perfect and still be okay. We can choose to be okay with, imperfect, with the imperfections of life, right? You could either have a problem that you're... Uh, inhabiting an aging body, or you can be okay. I remember I did a retreat once with this teacher, and somebody, I forget exactly what they said, but they were basically lamenting impermanence. And this teacher, in just a really lighthearted but powerful way, said, I don't have a problem with impermanence. Well, that's a possibility, isn't it? Right? We can learn not to have a problem with impermanence. Now, how do we do that? Well, we have moments of the heart 
being really, really profoundly peaceful in the world we're actually living in. And then that reminds us, hey, because moments of peace, like from concentration, when the mind drops its habit of struggle, that's what concentration is. The mind has temporarily ceased struggling with experience. That's why it's a still, peaceful state. And the mind can then have insight into that experience of concentration. It's another step where the mind realizes something about the state of concentration. Oh, this way of being, this way of not reacting, not struggling, I could take it up as a way, as a way of being anytime. So that becomes, then it, it's sort of like the mind is generalizing the experience of the peace it gets from a concentrated state. So even I can be okay with the reactivity, I can be equanimous with my reactive mind. So let's say I catch it a little late, I walk into the cold room, or you know, you could use, use any example, walk into a room with somebody you really are attracted to or really repulsed by. So you have a strong reaction. And I'm not very mindful initially, so my reactive pattern, the conditioned way my mind reacts to that person, gets set in motion. There I am, spinning, really liking this person, really not liking this person, thinking about how to get rid of them or get out of that. But even then, can be a moment of equanimity. Like that view that I'm learning could come in. Oh, well, can this be okay? Being in a flow, full-blown aversion attack, can that be okay? So I'm not for it, and I'm not against it. I'm not going to indulge in the aversion, but I'm not going to be averse to the aversion. I'm just going to see, sometimes it's like this. And see, that's what equanimity is. It's understanding that in a lawful universe that unfolds conditionally, sometimes it's like this. You know how we know that sometimes it's like this? Because it's like this now, right? So if the moment is like this, then we know sometimes it's like this. Because what we've learned is it's lawful. It's never like a mistake. Oh wait, it's not supposed to be this way. No, it's always the way it's supposed to be because we live in a lawful or conditional universe. Things unfold according to causes and conditions. And sometimes it's like this. So when a really happy moment arises for you, then say that to yourself. Oh, sometimes it's like this. You have marital bliss. You and your partner are just getting along. Sometimes it's like this. And then another time, it's like, great doubt, why did I marry? Or why am I with this person? And then it would be so useful for the mind, the the sort of view of equanimity to arise. Sometimes it's like this. Sometimes it's like hell. Sometimes it's like this. That's not a mistake. It's just like this sometimes. Sometimes it's really difficult having a body. Sometimes it's very delightful having a body, a sensitive body that can smell and see. I've been at the retreat property doing the fall practice period I mentioned. And of course we're having these beautiful snowfalls. Seems like every other day (laughs) for a week now. And uh, all the leaves are gone so you can walk. We've got a lot of hills and woods and 
quite beautiful. It's very delightful being out in the space and seeing the skies and the, call it a murder of crows <laughs> swirling about and the bald eagles and the other big birds of prey that soar around deer. Sometimes it's like this. And then sometimes you drive back into the city, you know, and you got traffic and you got the all the messy streets, you know, and all the problems that come with city driving in the winter. Sometimes it's like that. You know, sometimes my mind is really clear and nimble and bright, but sometimes it's like, you know, slush. I just can't think straight, can't remember people's names, don't know what's up and down. Sometimes it's like that. And so this is really at the heart of equanimity, and we want to recognize this is a potential. This mind can relate with equanimity. One of the translations of the word upeka, which is the Pali word for um, equanimity. Pali is the language spoken around the time of the Buddha. And uh, one of the more technical translations is there in the middleness. There in the middleness. So it's a mind that's not confused by its preferences. It's not a mind that doesn't have preferences. <coughs> we still have preferences. Preference, where do preferences come from? Well, they just come from how our minds are conditioned. That's why some of you like certain foods. It's not because those foods are actually more delightful than the food you don't like. It's just you've been conditioned to like that and conditioned to not like other things. You know, I grew up in the late 50s and 60s, and you know, it was the time of Wonder Bread, and peanut butter, and strawberry jam, and Cheerios, later, sugar frosted flakes, but my parents never bought that, powdered milk, and mac and cheese, you know, and so I have opinions about the, that kind of stuff, you know, good and bad, depending. And other people, you know, have different opinions. They grew up in a different era or a different place. And so, so we're all, there are, all of our minds are conditioned a particular way. And the practice isn't about stripping away all that conditioning. It's not being confused by the conditioning that we have, the preferences that are there. It's just a preference. Right? So can we see the preferences and the fears that have been conditioned into our minds as just that. They're just preferences, just fears, just those conditioned tendencies of this mind. Or are we going to immediately personalize the preferences, the tendencies, the dispositions of the mind, and act them out as if they are me? You see, there's a choice there. With insight, if the mind gets what I'm pointing to, like if you've had some insight, then you get this. We don't have to suffer just because there's unpleasantness or because pleasantness is going away. We can choose instead to cultivate equanimity, to live with equanimity. Now remember, equanimity is not indifference. 
It doesn't mean the mind doesn't know the difference between pleasant and unpleasant. It just means we're not staking our happiness on the pleasantness or unpleasantness of life. Otherwise, we're doomed. If our idea of happiness depends on pleasantness, we're doomed because who in the room is in charge of pleasantness? You know, the Buddha used this great list called the eight worldly winds or the eight vicissitudes of life. Gain and loss. Pain and pleasure. Fame and disrepute and praise and blame. That our lives gets blown around in these eight ways. Praise sometimes. Hey, you're great. That was a great talk. Blame. What were you talking about? (laughs) Fame and disrepute. Gain and loss. Success and failure. Pain and pleasure. We're just constantly moving through these eight things. And nobody's in charge of these eight things. I mean, we try, and every once in a while, we get fooled in thinking that we are in control. So we just try harder and harder, and we feel betrayed when our hard work doesn't lead to fame and praise and pleasure and gain. Right? How many times have we personally felt like a failure because we had pain? As if we're responsible for when pain and pleasure come and go. Or gain. You know, we live in this sort of competitive meritocracy as if we're responsible for our successes, right? That's what we basically, this is like the delusion of privilege, you know, that we think, we don't realize that whatever success we've gotten has been simply the lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. Even if you worked your butt off, Where did that tendency to work your butt off come from? You didn't, in the cafeteria of life, you know, where you're going through the line, choosing the qualities, I'll take a lot of that capacity to work my butt off, you know, and you see other people not taking it, like, oh, you you should be taking this, this is what you want. No, it's not like we chose to be able to work hard, or we chose our intelligence, or we chose our family of origin, or growing up in a place where our kind of person is going to be oppressed or our kind of person is going to be at the top of the heap. Nobody chooses these things. These are just the unfolding of causes and conditions. And yet we beat ourselves up or take pride in success and failure because we think wrongly it's personal, but it's the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. So there's this other way, which is what we call equanimity. We can choose, we can train the mind, we can develop this muscle to not uh, make happiness a function of the pleasantness or unpleasantness of life. Instead, happiness can be a function of the freedom the mind has from the conditions. Remember, freedom from the conditions of the moment does not mean distance. That would be like indifference, like, I just don't want the life I'm having. I don't want the experience I'm having. I'm going to pretend it ain't so. No. Freedom freedom only makes sense with intimacy. There's no freedom without intimacy. Like to say that I'm free with the temperature in the room and not be in the room, that's not being free. 
to be free with this temperature as it is, the 71-ness of this room, means we have to really be here. And not even distracted, we have to be aware of the temperature to realize freedom with this temperature. If you want to be free in your relationship with your partner, you have to be free being intimate with that person, connecting, seeing them as they are, being real with them. That's the only way to be free. You can't be free and just not go home, or when you go home, not really show up. You'll be lost in your obsessive hobbies, so you don't actually have to interact with your partner. So freedom always means engagement. Did people misunderstand this about the Buddhist teachings? They think the Buddha was teaching about some kind of disengagement. That's the path to happiness. God, if I just didn't have to be in life, I'd be so happy in life. You know, if, if I only didn't have a body or relationships or have to earn a living or feed the body or poop, I'd be so happy. <laughs> In other words, if only I weren't a human being, I'd be such a happy human being. <laughs> but that's kind of how we think. And there's a lot of this in spiritual life, this idea of, a wrong idea of transcendence. You know, if only I could get to heaven, this ethereal state, where there were no problems, well then I could be free. But the really interesting question, well can I be free here? with a personality that was conditioned without my permission, right? In a world that nobody set in motion, that's really messy in the way that it is, this world is messy. All the complications that comes with being a sexual being, with having to feed our bodies, and caring about life, but not able to protect life, even though we care about it, this is a, the messiness of life. Well, can we be free in this, engaged in this, showing up in this? That's the real question. And that's where equanimity is. And the, and the direction we get from our moments of stillness, of peace, <clears throat> we don't want to like be dependent on moments of deep concentration. We want to learn what we can learn from them, which is it is possible for this heart not to struggle. We see it. That's what we see in a moment of concentration, a moment of deep peace. And then we bring it out of the world. Well, okay, how about not struggling now in this moment? Now that my concentration is a week away, you know, when I was on a retreat, now I'm back in my world, and I only get a half an hour to sit, and then it's a busy life, working at a job where there are a lot of crazy people. Is there a way, that way I realized I'm not struggling, what would that look like in this moment, not struggling? how to show up and do what needs to be done and not be attached. What would that look like? Because remember, equanimity does not mean disengagement. So be careful, be on the lookout as you're reflecting on equanimity. If you immediately put an image to mind like equanimity, oh yeah, it's fine. It's sort of like Minnesota nice to the extreme. That is not equanimity, that's repression. <laughs> really. <laughs> equanimity is like engagement. The personality is engaged. It's responding and not always in a pretty way. But the mind is understanding sometimes it's like this. Sometimes I lose it and it's like this. And then losing it, I set in motion suffering for myself and others. And sometimes that's like this. 
But sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes there's enough wisdom, enough clarity, and things go really harmoniously, really skillfully and beautifully. Sometimes it's like this. So that's what equanimity, it's not confused by what's arising internally, like what the personality is doing, and externally, what everybody else's personality is doing. We'll come back to this at least one more week and talk about equanimity, but I want to leave it here. We have 11 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some of you. I'm sure you've had your own experiences of equanimity and then losing it, or have questions about this quality of mind we call equanimity. What comes to mind? Yeah. Um, Hi, Alex. I, I like what you said about equanimity, and I think it makes sense. Um, what doesn't necessarily seem obvious is how to relate discernment with equanimity. You know, like monks create a lifestyle that are, is, very, is very particular to cultivate, say, whatever quality they can cultivate, and they're consciously not having a lot of stimulants, for instance, or not having a job in some instances. So they, you know, in that instance, they focused on those qualities and to, to the exclusion of other actions, you know? And there was discernment involved, right? At some level. But you know what happens, actually, in a, like a healthy monastic setting, which, you know, in Buddhism, the monastic setting is considered to be the optimal way to practice. So even as lay people, we we try to learn from the model, like well, what could that look like in my lay life with a partner needing to have a job. So it, it's useful to think about the ideal of monastic life. But the way it actually works is the senior people, presumably, you know, the senior nuns and monks, presumably with some real insight, wisdom, they work their butts off creating the conditions so the newer folks, people with less insight, can have a relatively um, fewer duties and responsibilities. But they tend to get drawn in to the mess in a big time way because they're in demand. And you know, in, in Buddhist cultures, the monks and nuns, the sort of senior ones, the ones that presumably have a lot of wisdom, uh, people go to them for all the right and wrong reasons. They're sort of superstars. People go to them for every conceivable problem and uh, ask them to weigh in on all the community decisions. And then on top of it, they're trying to keep the monastic community harmonious, putting out fires. They're constantly having to do building projects and the raising of the money and the directing of the funds and so it's not and it's perfect for them in a way because then they get a chance for that engagement to see uh, how resonant that equanimity is and when they lose it then they realize they need to retreat more you know they need to remember this possibility or they need to endure it they need to rediscover it in the engagement itself so I think it's kind of natural that as human beings, whether we're a lay person or a monk, we should take advantage of situations that it makes it more conducive to understand something about equanimity or freedom. Let's just talk about it as freedom. 
And generally, we, we experience moments of freedom best when there are not a lot of duties and responsibilities, as you're suggesting. But then life is going to draw us back in. Your kid, the cat, you know, it's going to want to be fed. Or I have to show up and go to work, or whatever's next. So when life allows things to quiet down, allows you to live in a simple way, then really take advantage of that by going into stillness and peace and remembering that it's possible for this mind to be really awake and profoundly, in a profound way, not struggle with what's coming and going. That's what moments of quiet remind the mind. Then it feels inspired to sort of take that into the world. Can that non-attachment continue as I get up out of my meditation and go into traffic or go into the office or you know, what's, whatever's left? Because I think the real uh, tragedy is people who don't have enough of that space, enough of the positive conditions, wealth or inclinations, that allows them to take advantage of the quiet. So when they do, even if they, I mean, some people don't ever get any space in the schedule. But a lot of people who do fill it up in meaningless ways. You know, we turn the TV on, for example, or have conversations that aren't really of benefit for anybody, or go consume. So that's the real tragedy, is a lot of us who have enough good fortune don't take advantage of the space we have in our life to learn more about the mind itself. It's a wasted opportunity. And that's actually one of the reflections that's talked a lot about, especially in the Tibetan tradition, you know, the preciousness of human existence and um, how rare it is to, to have, you know, for those of us who have enough privilege to have food and shelter and our lives aren't constantly absorbed in just survival earning a living, taking care of our families. So there's enough space that we can actually be reflective, interested in the mind itself, interested in the heart. We have, most of us at least, have that opportunity. And it's just a question if we're going to take advantage of that opportunity or not. And in a way, we should be inspired by all the humans who can't do it because they're in a, living in a war zone or in poverty or something that's... Or they just don't have the good fortune to be running into these teachings. And so they end up filling their life with things that ultimately don't matter very much. That's, you know, so we want to use it to motivate ourselves to take advantage of the time that we have. Thanks, Alex. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Casey. I just want to get a little clarity around something. Um, one of the things you said uh, I think I, I think I get it. You had said that when you're when you're autonomous, you're sort of saying, "Can this be okay?" But some of the things you're saying, "Can this be okay?" about include even your own behavior to an extent, mm-hmm. uh, positive, negative, whether you're pursuing a goal or whether you're reacting to something in a negative way. You're sort of giving it space. 
Well, it's already, remember, it's already there, that behavior. Right. So you're not giving it space. That behavior is taking space up. It's there already. So to resist what's already there is insane. Really, literally. But that's kind of what our mind wants to do. So when we, it's not giving it space to be there doesn't mean we don't recognize the unskillfulness of the behavior. Actually, it allows us to really taste how unskillful it is because instead of wasting our time denying it or hating ourselves, we're actually feeling what it feels like to have done or said what we've done or said. So it brings us closer so we really see what it is that was just done. So it's an opportunity to learn about the causes for suffering in a very immediate, direct way, not theoretical, because we just, you know, did something stupid, let's say, and we realize sometimes it's like this. And that means we're dropping in to what the heart-mind feels like when it does this, thinks this way, acts this way. It's tricky, because, and I'm glad you brought it up, because it's really easy like I said earlier, it's really easy to mistake equanimity for... And you see this a lot in Buddhism, where people mistake the teachings on emptiness with something like it doesn't matter. But it's actually helping us understand how it matters by understanding sometimes it's like this. But it doesn't... The lang when we language it, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds like we don't care. So it's good to bring up... Maybe time for one more thought, if there is anybody, another comment, question? Yeah, Nancy. Well, I was just reminded of, I read this somewhere, and then I remember thinking, like, yes, I, I can relate to this. How, just like you were saying, that in a moment of, like, like an example, and maybe you can write, like, eating ice cream, and you know, like, this is, I'm kind of, I'm overdoing it, I'm indulging too much. But then there's, you can actually start fantasizing about tomorrow or how you're not going to do it. And like, and tomorrow I'm just going to, you know, or maybe I won't buy ice cream anymore. Like, that will be my strategy. Or, you know, so you're right there doing it, fantasizing about how you're not going to. And instead, like you said, if you wake up just to see how this moment is so painful, you know, not that ice cream is always bad, but there's that, you know, this is too much. And um, so really connecting, because I know I've done that maybe many ways. So just start, like, fantasizing in the moment. Of, um, and it, then you feel good about it. You're so happy that you're going to stop doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a good example about how our minds are insane. <laughs> yeah. Being on retreat, fantasizing about going on retreat. That's an, I mean, it happens all the time. Being married to a really wonderful person and imagining being married to a wonderful person. We do all that sort of crazy stuff all the time. Having a life and imagining a different life instead of the one we have. We have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Thanks for your comments, everyone. Just take a few seconds. Just enough time to take a breath or two together.
appreciating the sense of space in the heart. And appreciating all the teachings, all the women and men who have practiced over the centuries. They had busy lives, complicated lives. They did the best, developed some real insight wisdom and compassion. And now we are the direct recipients, the direct lineage of all of these wise and loving beings. Now it's our turn in our busy, complicated lives to do the best we can. Water the seeds of wisdom and compassion to be causes for peace. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.